Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. Those are kind of galvanizing moments when you kind of have to ask yourself what it is you're doing it and why you're doing it you know what is the identity of this thing that you created this idea of one's role within this traveling circus it's something that I think we're all still kind of struggling with but we are communicating I think and at some point you have to realize that for a band to work everyone needs to somehow sublimate their ego and not be thinking about themselves but that's obviously impossible when you're thrust into this life and the eye of the storm. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. When I was a younger man, I used to think that life was like a, a linear thing, you know, where you'd, you'd keep going, you'd reach one mountain and then look in the future and get another mountain to climb over. I realized that it's more like concentric circles and we keep going around the same things and we, we either fall down to learn our mistakes or we go up to another one so are yeah, we are we are recording now we're recording so you should introduce <laughs> our guest today. Oh, whoops, but, ah. <laughs> let me get me your name correct if i may and let me see it's kelly okareki yes yes it is yes it is and where are you kelly i am i'm currently at home in south london at the moment you're just an hour ahead of me you know that strange land that you used to be part of you know you're <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> don't, 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 don't. It's, it's still too painful. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's. Oh, it's painful from over here, really. It's yeah, it's a really, hmm. yeah, it's hard. Don't, don't, don't get me started on on, on Brexit. Uh, this, we're talking about the Brexit tissue. <laughs> yeah, Brexit tissue. Uh, it it's a tissue. It comes in a cardboard box, uh, and it's still going. It's still it's still going. It's you know even if what's happening with um, Northern Ireland, yeah, in Northern Ireland, it's it's still like uh, dominating the news cycle. It's but three years after it, it happened, it's just this nightmare that won't go away. I just have a passport that doesn't go through the channel anymore. You know the yeah. Okay, so what does that mean for you? So you live in Berlin now uh, as an expat, yeah. <sighs> I know. Are you able to come back to the country? What's what's? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose it means. Let me think. Does it mean anything right now? Um, 
I haven't had any trouble traveling around Europe, but my passport is not officially a European passport anymore. Okay, okay, okay. But we've been here such a long time now, like 10 years, so the children were born here. Um, and my wife has, has applied for citizenship. If anybody from the Citizenship Bureau is listening, <laughs> can you hurry up? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah so it's, it's just... You know, I, I left Britain, like, really, I left Britain in 1992 uh, for France and lived there for like 15 years and dipped a toe back in, in north of London for about two years and then came out here to Berlin. Um, so it's been like watching and, tr and, and sort of keeping, a, a, you know, in touch with Britain from a distance. But it's always been strange, right from the time I lost my right to vote, you know, so. Well, right, okay. Yeah. You remember that thing, Lowell? <laughs> yeah, I did vote once in England. I mean, I, I've been out here over a quarter of a century. So, you know, I have a friend that lives in, in England, lives in, in Colchester, and I, I went to school with him, and I, I call him up every so often, and I go, Steve tell me what the fuck is happening because I've no idea. I've absolutely no idea. You know, I read the LA Times, which doesn't tell you much outside of California. But, you know, I kind of got an inkling of it because before the pandemic, I still have a brother lives there. You know, he's old now and almost 80. No, he is 80. So I would go and visit him. And so I'd go back maybe once a year or whatever. But I haven't been back since the, the pandemic started. But one thing that I really really remembered when I got back before Brexit was going on was I would go to like these old market towns that I went to when I was a teenager and it used to be that there would be like a pub an old pub like a you know four or five hundred year old pub in the in the town center and that was like the center of of the community and they were all closing yeah they were all closing they were all turning into pound stores and so I could see like the, the it's kind of like here where you know, there's all this sort of thing where we, oh, we don't want to do what the federal government tells us. We want to do only what we want to do in our state. And I could see the same thing happening in England. It was the same reason that that Trump arose here, fueled, you know, the Brexit thing as far as I could see. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Also, I can't believe that anybody who grew up in the 1970s in England, which I did, would want to do that. You know, would they not remember what it was like with, you know, no electricity for three days a week and all that crap, you know? And and supermarkets, like, they looked like Eastern European supermarkets back then. They had bread, eggs, milk, that was it, you know? <laughs> so I don't know why anybody wants to do it. Candle, candles if you were lucky. Yeah, right. Why do you think it is people wanted to do it? Why do I think that people wanted to leave the European Union? Yeah, really. I mean, you know, people that... Because it seems so counterintuitive to everything that I think about the place, you know? Yeah, I mean, I have some theories about it that, you know, might not be so popular in certain circles. But as a child of immigrants, I feel that the immigration issue was the crux of it for a lot of people. I feel this idea of, you know, everyone's talking, you know, the acceptable face of that answer was, you know, we're wanting to be free from uh, Brussels, um, like 
decision making but if you if you were to stop the person on the street to ask them what the issue was about decision making in Brussels they wouldn't be able to answer you know I think it was a way of the country saying that they'd had enough of people that didn't you know from other countries coming into their country and they wanted to stop that and that's what I believe and you know people like a protest vote yeah I think so and you know the debate in this country around that was just so ugly yeah you know you know I remember famously those posters that the leave campaign put up uh, of the kind of, of the brown-skinned people coming from from Europe, and the dog whistles were there, and that's how I interpreted it, and you know that's what continues to make it so, so depressing because it seemed to have ingrained something in like all of time that you had this idea that we were moving forward, that we were progressing as a society, and then you know things like this happen, and you realise that deep-seated divisions haven't really gone away at all. So that that's how I interpret it. I know other people might claim that it's it wasn't about that, but as someone that lives in the UK, that sees the mood, that's how I interpreted it, and that's how I will always interpret it. So. It's strange. I was I was back in the UK. I was touring around with John Grant, and I was amazed at how great the cities looked, how well Newcastle was doing, how Birmingham had transformed itself, how Liverpool was not in a run down anymore. Manchester was like money coming up and was building for everywhere. There was stuff going on. It was and people saying, yeah, this is European money coming in. This is like well so this must be good. And then it started to change where the hotels in Newcastle and the development around, um, you know, um, around the Tyne, then things started to close. Um, I don't know what it's like now, but it seems so like it was, it really transformed. And I could only see this, it was going to have the opposite effect, sadly. Yeah, it has the opposite effect. I can, I can agree with you. Kelly about your your point of view about it all because I see this exactly the same thing here uh, a couple of years ago I put out a book and I went on on tour around America you know and in 40 years of traveling around America touring and every I've never ever felt scared anywhere I went you know doesn't matter where, where I've gone I've always felt like I was okay and then Trump came along and certain places didn't seem okay didn't seem safe to me and you know i'm i'm not the kind of person that's on the list of all these people that that followed trump but as soon as i open my mouth and I, and i'm you know i'm obviously from somewhere different yeah yeah then i get the same same reactions and the same feeling and i think it's a worldwide thing i don't think it's just britain or even just britain and america i think it's a worldwide thing and it's for sure for sure. I mean, that's what was exciting about Lula becoming um, president in Brazil was that maybe the tide of populism is is stalling. You know, let's see what happens. Trump does run again. That will be a real test for democracy. And it just seems ridiculous that the whole world can see that, you know, January 6th was an attempted coup. And, you know, still no charges have been brought and you know and the path is open for him to run again it's you know he's already made it clear that he's not afraid to get dirty and to coordinate 
um, with you know nefarious types oh, yeah. to seize power. So let's see, let's see what happens again. Anyway, yeah, sorry, this is this is all getting very heavy. From Liverpool, Kelly? Uh, I was born in Liverpool and I was apparently christened in the book was at the start of Brookside. Um, but I don't have any real memories of it because we moved to Edinburgh and then we moved from Edinburgh to London. So my earliest memories, uh, I guess, being about five in Edinburgh and then coming to London when I was eight. I mean, I always never count, counted myself from Liverpool because I'm from St. Helens, <laughs> you know, which is... I used to say it was like oh about twenty miles away, but it's it's like ten. It's not really, and every everybody in St Helens, it's it's Liverpool. So they would, you know, if you'd have stayed there, they would call you Kelly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I was called Pete, Pete, never Peter, you know. And if even when I was called Budgie, it was Budgie, Budgie, yeah, you're right, Budgie, Budge. <laughs> but, um. No, I was talking about like the fields being full of beans and hay and stuff like that, and little farms, and everything was was on was local. Everything was local, hmm. and it was something I lived in London a long time and realised that we were eating stuff way out of season, you know. And yeah. this wasn't coming from local; it was all coming from Spain or France or much further away. And I remember once going down somewhere over where the, the Thames estuary and seeing these huge warehouses. I think it was for like five sog east, you know, the bananas. And uh, and I saw a documentary on how they hold the bananas for different stages of ripening because to time the, the truck getting from there to the supermarket, <laughs> you know, 60 miles, 120 miles, whatever it might be, that they would have to arrive and be, like, ready for the shelf. Yeah. It was that kind of tight. And it just took a few things to knock the whole thing off. Well, I just thought a port blocking up is is really going to mess with the bananas, right? Uh, here they stick them all in gigantic freezer warehouses for months on end so that you know you live in wisconsin and you can get strawberries in february doesn't mean they're going to be good strawberries but they're going to look like strawberries you know? and be pumped full of oh yeah pumped full of crap yeah yeah and there's the other thing is like here where we live in california you know it's really you know it's all about the right would want to close up the border here and that but then all the people like big agribusiness that runs, you know, the whole thing, they just want lots and lots of cheap labor, which means coming from, you know, Mexico. And so it, it's like, I was listening to this thing the other day, you know, the whole idea of capitalism, especially for America, was built on the idea of, if not cheap, free labor. That was the whole, the whole thing, you know, and that's like unsustainable, completely really and now they're they're like bringing in children to pick berries and stuff you know because they don't have to pay them very much and they've got no rights you know and as much as things have changed i actually think human nature and human race hasn't evolved very much at all you make that point about um child uh, fruit pickers um i mean i think something similar whenever i go into um the, the supermarket and there's the um 
you know, there's like, the automated machine thing that, that you can like buy your food on. You don't have to like sp speak to someone. You know, that's doing people out of jobs. Uh, this machine that is supposedly making life easier is actually, it's part of the problem. It's increasing the squeeze and so I, I don't use them unless I'm in a real hurry. <laughs> right, right, right. And then you have to get the you have to get the person who's looking after four tills going. Yeah, exactly. Why, exactly. why is this barcode not working? And they go, oh, <laughs> not that one again. It's funny they they've only recently become a thing here because, in a strange way, you know, America has always been about you know for people buying things has been about service so yes, americans yeah. don't want to pack their own bags and they don't <laughs> want to you know they want to give it to somebody and go okay here's your bill sir or, or you know they they don't want to do that so but they are taking over a bit now they are the self-service things it's coming Couldn't believe that when I went to America because I, I remember the story of like learning to drive. I learned to drive so I could go to America and rent a car because yeah. then I could rent a car and I could leave the tour for a little while. Right. But when I went over there and started to stay there a bit longer, and I, and then you have to go to like a, a shop or a restaurant and they want a valet park you. And I'm going, I want to park it myself, thanks. And you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, you have to find the car park. Or they just park it on the street, right? Yeah, that was weird. That was a weird concept, valet parking. It seems kind of odd to me, but but all kind of parking seems odd because, um, I mean, I don't drive, so, um, <laughs> which, is, which is not something I'm proud about. Um, but I, you know, growing up in London. You don't want to drive in London. You don't really need to drive in London. It's, it becomes a, a liability. I mean, when I lived in London, I didn't drive. I only learned to drive when I got out to California and realized if I didn't... Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah, I'm going to have to do it. Otherwise, I'm just not going to get anywhere. Is it too late to like take it up, do you think? I'm like 40. No. I'll tell you what the driving school said to me. I called them up and I was like 32, 33. And I said, do you teach, you know, like older people to drive? And I said, we can teach anybody to drive. And they were right, you know, with 12 lessons I could drive. So it was fine, yeah. Okay, okay. I think you'd be much safer as well, you know. Now you've got the teenage, the teenage years are behind you. And, for uh, sure, for sure. But, but my fear is that I'd be too timid. Um, and, you know, I haven't driven at all in my life. And, and there is a part of me that is slightly nervous about just the idea of being behind such uh, I think the timidity will go when you get cut when, the first time you get cut <laughs> up by somebody uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly because the, the horns just grow really quickly those horns just pop out the head and you just go like hey <laughs> um, yeah that's actually the thing about living in America that I mean you know we've been to America obviously lots of times I've, I've had lots of great times there and I, I did live I lived in New York for like a year and, and, and it was lovely but just the idea of setting up a home there I, I always felt I just can't do it because like they have so much access to guns here like you know and it just takes one person with a gun for like a massacre as we're seeing as you know you know every, every month every school shooting it's just I guess you're realising that like anyone ha has access to something that can do so much damage it just didn't that's something that I just, yeah, I couldn't get around. No, I know, it's, it's ridiculous. Although I have to say, I lived here the longest I lived anywhere in my whole life. And the only time that I have seen 
guns drawn in public yeah was was coppers okay you know Okay. That's the only time, you know, and, and I know everybody's got them. I know there are more guns than people in this country, so you're never going to you're never going to be able to stop that. For me, I think it's more to do with this sort of, I don't know, it's a pervasive attitude that you can change everything, and you can't change everything, you know, and, and that works on both sides of the equation. It, it, it's an unsolvable problem at this point. I, I never believed that people, when it said a um, little sign on the manicured lawn outside the Beverly Hills houses, you know, because we, you know, we were the aliens that walked, you know, what, oh, look at this, let's, let's follow this sidewalk, <laughs> this, wonder where it leads to, and you'd see signs going, armed response. And I'm going like, what's that mean? I'm dr- you mean they like what? What you know? So they call somebody. Say no, they come out with a gun. You know, no, they phone somebody up. But I, the, my first run in with a gun, if you like, would be um, probably in Italy. I think it was in Milan, and and asking somebody directly. Carabinari. I don't think. I think. I think it might have been the Carabinieri or whatever. But it was. I. I. What I did. I asked. I asked somebody directions with a uniform on. Yeah. I didn't know that he had a gun trained on somebody in a car while his colleague was at, like checking a license or something. So he just kind of turned around with his like gun pointing at my stomach. So, so he pointed the gun at you from... He just didn't move his shape. He just kind of swung around and, 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 and I went, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I you know what I saw? I, I saw, I looked at his hands. I looked at the condition of the weapon that he was holding. It was like dented and like, pitted and his fingernails were a little dirty and i thought he's a really young guy and this is not a very safe thing he's old holding and 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 i'm not sure how 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 steady his hand is and and the next and all these things flashing through your mind like you know wonder what a bullet feels like is it hot oh my god oh my god and uh, (laughs) and then he swung around and it was fine and see see yeah good general ciao ragazzi and and just that yeah. That that happened to me in Belfast. First time the cure went over, and and you know, Parry was driving us into the centre of town, and he said, "Oh, get out and ask that copper over there directions to the Europe Hotel." What I didn't see was the soldier around the corner, and I get out of the car. You know, this kid dressed all in black running towards this policeman, and the next thing I know is, you know, the, I've got a gun right up in my stomach you know, from the, the soldier. And I'm like, I just want to know the way to the Europa Hotel. Oh, that was a good move, Lord. You put your hands up. Yeah. <laughs> it's automatic when people do that, you know. It's like you have to. But um, Do you remember that, that hotel? In, is it Belfast, the Europa? Or? Europa. The Europa, the most bombed hotel in Europe. Nothing on the first four floors except the bar. When you stepped out onto the street, you know, and you got under the, the barrier, it was like a barrier protecting the hotel from truck from people ramming into the hotel and there were these uh, police land rovers which were so heavily armored you couldn't hear the engine so they were like as if they're like what an electric car sounds like now like hissing just the, all you heard was the rubber on the tarmac kind of going shh because the engine was silent because it was so heavily clad in steel and i just thought oh this is so weird this is weird and yet it was like they were, they were, I suppose it was a bit like coming to Berlin, where I'm now living, you know, when the wall was still up. And you, you kind of came along the corridor, the access route through the old west to east, and then um, Berlin being the island in the east. And, and it was just that, that the party was going on in Berlin. It's like the party in Belfast was going on at that hotel. <laughs> when you finished the TV show, everybody was in there till like four in the morning. 
Berlin was like really strange. It was like this little island and there was no through traffic. So you could walk down what is now the main shopping street here in Berlin, the Kudam. On a Sunday afternoon, it was like sometime in the 1820s or something. There were no cars. I, I remember it being feeling like the 1930s, like the Weimar Republic. You know, everything was a little crazy because people couldn't leave, right? So they're all stuck in this little island, like you say, and like, well, okay, well, let's let's just get on with it, you know, enjoy it. And apparently, if you talk to the people who were, you know, born here at that time, they say it was lovely, you know, everything was subsidized. We had, like, you know, everything we needed and more. And there was not a lot of people, uh, so there was a lot of space. Uh, people came over from, I know people left Britain and tried living in Berlin, but they, it was, you know, it was difficult with it not being open, so you, you're isolated. But did it feel safe? Yeah, yeah. Um, safe in terms of, it was like like a bit of a film set, really. You know, it, it, was, it was unreal. And there's still an air of that about Berlin. It seems like, you know, it's still finding, it's just finding an identity, I suppose. Still, after all these years, after, you know, the wall came down and returned to being the capital, um, still, it's still a, a great young city, you know, with people arriving from over. And, and right back to where we started the conversation, Brexit has changed everything. So, you know, young medical students are coming to Berlin rather than heading over to maybe London, where they would have done. So the local hospital is full of really smart, talented doctors and nurses, you know, young medical students from different parts of the world. This is intrigued me because I did some due diligence and, you know, you went to Catholic school. Mm. Yes. So did I. So did Budgie. So, um, you know, I, I have this theory that that without Catholic school, and, you know, let me be clear, I'm I'm not a, uh, a practicing Catholic anymore. And I am... Uh, you know, I'm 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 somebody who we're, we're we're hitting all the subjects tonight, aren't we? Yes, we are. We're connecting them all. I believe in in something outside of me. I, I'm not completely uh, atheist, but I'm not really you know an organised religion person anymore. Um, but I do know that without us having gone to Catholic school, there would have been no cure. You know, it wouldn't have happened. I don't think. Well, in in terms of the ethos or just in terms of proximity both both really because we were we were put into a position where you know the initial band the three of us were all thrown together in a good way and there was some because of the middle school that we went to there was some encouragement of an artistic bent but more than that it's all of the heavy duty uh, guilt and all the rest of the stuff that goes with that shit that made us. Ah, now I get it. Now, I was thinking, like, if you went to Protestant school, they wouldn't have allowed you to talk to each other about music or something, you know. <laughs> Church of England. No, no, we're not having... But you, what, you, you, you've just, like, you're talking, like, catechism and you're sure. talking, like... Yeah. 
all that stuff. I, I mean, I was an altar boy from seven till fourteen. Oh wow, me too, me too, me too. Yes, and a choir boy. No, I wasn't. I, I wasn't a choir boy. Last, I didn't really sing so much. And it's funny because that was the first place I really heard people, you know, on mass singing together. So you know, so I do think about that time. You know, going to church every Sunday. But I, you know, I was just part of the congregation. It was just hearing other voices, which I do feel has had an effect on me. It's like my job, you know, going and being around people singing and that sense of fellowship, that sense of magic that comes together during a live performance. Yeah, I definitely feel echoes of that when I think of, you know, going to as like a as like a, as a young person. Had the mass changed at that point to from Latin back to English? Yeah, I mean, I didn't sections of the mass were in latin like i mean i feel like it's been such a long time since i've attended the service but i feel like you know sections of the catholic mass are in latin aren't they and then you know like the transubstantiation um curie laison yes yes but you know in terms of it's it's interesting you mentioned that kind of law because i you know although i went to catholic primary school I mean, I knew very early on that I personally didn't take a lot of it seriously. My parents were very Catholic and it was something that I had to um, partake in. But I don't know that any of the kind of like dogmatic stuff took a hold. Uh, I think it was more the ritual. I think that was something that... Yeah, it's very heavily theatrical, you know religion yeah yeah my my mother was a catholic convert so she was very very keen on it my father was was a complete atheist and you know so it was very interesting lunchtime conversations in our house i was gonna say like how did that work with regards to you being exposed to faith you know did your father you know he obviously allowed you to be exposed to the church but that was more my my brothers that my brothers were sort of grew up in the you know they, they're like card carrying communists probably at that point you know and they went on the aldermaston marches and things and that so we got i got lots of different things you know seeping into our house my father unfortunately had been in the second world war and he had shell shock you know and back then the only uh, cure for shell shock was to get drunk all the time so that's what he did and it wasn't that he was particularly a bad man but he just wasn't available to me at all so it was my mother and my mother was a very devout catholic so i was from seven to fourteen i was serving mass four times a week and benediction and all the rest of it so it was fairly heavily imprinted on me and i think really like i said part of the reason for the cure was was uh to rebound against that you know that was that was that was our way out that was our way out of this thing because we were told a lot of what we were feeling as teenagers was was wrong and bad and you shouldn't be this way and you shouldn't be that way and that kind of didn't jive with everything else that I knew about the world. So it was... A reaction. The guilt was heavy, right? The guilt was as, as taken years to... Oh, absolutely. How long have you known each other? We, we, we go back... 40-something years. It's, it's funny, if you look back at photographs from that time, I can see we were all like... 
uh, you know, wrapped up in, in each other in conversation and the fun of it and sharing such a traumatic changing time when you're you know, late teen, early 20s. For us, the, the, the great thing at this point, you know, as we're marching into our third act or whatever, we're, we, we have so many similarities of things that have happened to us in our life and, uh, you know, our circumstance. And so I think if you're an artist or a musician or any, any kind of artist and that experiences the stuff that you use to generate your art but it's also the thing that sets you apart for your life that you can't have the same kind of life as a lot of people so to find somebody for me that understands when I say you know one line about a particular thing because they've been there and they've had that experience that a lot of people don't experience um, is has been invaluable to both of us I feel you're lucky that you have that I feel I feel very lucky feel very grateful to, to for us to have found that the opportunities to connect become more frequent or they, they, they present themselves and perhaps because enough time has elapsed and we've actually made some progress <laughs> I hope I have a yeah. little bit you know grown up a little bit uh, a little bit yeah. and attained some kind of uh, I don't know, getting rid of ego in a way and asking how people are just rather than, you know, walking through them, you know, as the band comes into town. Yeah. It's it's a, a, a dilemma that you don't really have when you're young, but it, it's, I, I, I figured as I was getting, as the band was getting older and I was changing, um, you realize that the gang you were isn't the same. And, my curiosity, my individual curiosity was getting larger than my routine in the band. That's that's a strange way of sentence, but it's... But I understand what you mean. I think really it's a very unnatural life, you know, to be in a band in your you know, early 20s. Absolutely. The phrase came out, routine in the band. You know, the kind of role that you're given or the role you adopt within the travelling circus of it. And everybody has their role to play. You know, in Block Party, we've had quite a few kind of lineup changes, I guess, over the years. And you realise, I don't know, yeah, those are kind of galvanising moments when you kind of have to ask yourself what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. You know, what is the identity of this thing that you created? This idea of one's role within this travelling circus is something that I think we're all still kind of struggling with but we are communicating, I think. And at some point you have to realise that for a band to work, everyone needs to somehow sublimate their ego and not be thinking about themselves. But that's obviously impossible when you're thrust into this life and the eye of the storm. Well, it's kind of catch-22, really, Yeah, isn't it? Because you're, you're, you have to sublimate your ego. You said it right there. You have to sublimate your ego. In a, in a business mm. that champions ego, you know? So it's like, how the hell can you do it, really? You, it's very difficult. I mean, yeah, and the history has shown that, like, it's it's nigh on impossible. Like, think, you know, how many bands, you know, can I think of where all the members have stayed in the band right. from inception to, you know, I can't, I can think of like a three or something. Um, I can only think of one. Uh, I mean, it's Coldplay and Radiohead. 
uh, are the only kind of current bands I can think of that have been for a long time and no one has left or you too yes you too you too yes it does exist but most people find it too hard so. yeah I know for for the cure definitely if we had just taken a break after about the fourth album mm. things might have turned out a little differently but of course you know the, the the business is not set up to do that. It's set up to like no. do another one, churn another one out and, and put go on tour again and do that. And, you know, to put very extreme young people into a situation like that, yes, where they're together 24 seven, something is bound to happen bad, you know, just recipe for disaster, basically. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A recipe for disaster, and then we all flock to it. Yeah, give me some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everyone loves it. Everyone loves a rock show, right? So. Oh yeah, and and they want to see you staring into the abyss. That's what they want to see. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2023.